Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Astronomy. I'm Meg Rosenberg, and I recently sat down with Dr. David Rothery to discuss his new book, Planet Mercury, From Pale Pink Dot to Dynamic World. This book was released this past November 2014 by Springer Praxis Books, and it gives us an inside look at a planet that is not always given a lot of attention. That has really changed over the past decade or so with NASA's Mercury Surface Space Environment Geochemistry and Ranging Mission, or MESSENGER, which has been orbiting the first rock from the sun since 2011. The European Space Agency, in collaboration with Japan, also has a Mercury mission in the works, and BepiColombo is scheduled to launch in 2016. Dr. Rothery, the UK lead scientist on one of the instruments, the Mercury Imaging X-ray Spectrometer, takes us through historical investigations of Mercury and brings us up to speed on recent discoveries and new mysteries opened up by MESSENGER. And with that, here's our conversation. I'm here today with Dr. David Rothery, author of Planet Mercury, From Pale Pink Dot to Dynamic World. Dr. Rothery is a professor of planetary geosciences at the Open University, and his latest book introduces the innermost planet in our solar system, which has remained fairly mysterious until recent decades, and is now proving to be a pretty interesting place. So welcome to New Books in Astronomy, and thank you so much for joining me to chat about Mercury. Well, thank you for having me on, Meg. I'm very happy to talk about Mercury. It's a far more intriguing place than I would have believed when I got drawn into this field. So maybe you could kick off our conversation and say a little bit about yourself. How did you become a scientist and why did you choose planetary science and geoscience in particular? Well, it's a, it's a convoluted story. When, when I was in my early teens, I, I was interested in astronomy and I couldn't afford a proper telescope. I had binoculars, and I used to go out onto my parents' front lawn and observe variable stars. These are stars whose brightness changes. And you compare the variable star with a couple of comparison stars, and you plot a graph of, of its, its changing magnitude. And that was my first science that I did. Um, I did well enough at school to get into Cambridge University, and I was going to do physics with half an eye on being an astronomer. But the good thing about Cambridge is you don't do a single science. They make you do three different sciences in the first year. So with physics, I did crystalline materials. And geology, which I'd never studied at school, had to give up geography so I could do history. That's the choice you're doing. Anyway, so I did those three different sciences and um, discovered I wasn't good enough at the maths course that you had to do to support the physics, and I wasn't really going to make it as a physicist, but I really enjoyed geology. So I ended up specialising in geology in my second and third years and graduated in in geology and went on to do a, a PhD at the Open University. And in those days, um, Landsat, the first remote sensing satellite that was widely available, um, was a very promising tool. And my supervisor had a project mapping the barren mountains in the Oman Peninsula of Arabia, which is a piece of ocean crust thrust onto land, an ophiolite, um, got a grant for somebody like me to come and use remote sensing satellite images to help with the mapping project. So I used satellites looking down at the Earth when I thought I was going to be down on the Earth looking out to space if I tried to predict the future before I went to university. So I did remote sensing, geology, um, and I got postdoctoral positions. And um, that took me into eventually looking at Mars. And now I'm looking at Mercury. So now I've kind of become, I'm not really an astronomer, but I'm a planetary scientist through having studied geology rather than becoming a physicist and turning to astronomy. So it's funny how things work out, and I rub shoulders with astronomers all the time now. So um, but, so this book, you mentioned Mars, but this book puts the planet Mercury front and center, and we don't always hear as much about Mercury as we do about Mars, for example. So how did this particular book come about? Well, the book came about, well, it wouldn't have been written if NASA didn't have the messenger mission that's been orbiting Mercury since March 
2011. Uh, it's almost completed four years of orbital science, and without those new data, nobody would have written a new book about Mercury. But what drew me into Mercury was the European Space Agency's Mercury mission called Bepi Colombo, which hasn't launched yet. Um, it launches in 2016. We'll get there in 2024. Um, doubtless we'll talk about that when we start working our way through the book. But I found myself... Um, being asked to review proposals to the UK funding agencies to put instruments on this spacecraft. And um, then I ended up actually being the lead scientist on the instrument that was accepted. So I have, I've had to become the UK's uh, most all-round expert on Mercury because of this instrument that the UK has on the European Space Agency Mercury mission. So I thought, well, I've had to learn all this stuff about Mercury. It's time somebody wrote the book, and there's a lot of good stuff to say. Now we have all these data coming in from Messenger. So um, I know that you've written this book, and you've written other books in the past on different topics in planetary science. And you mentioned in the preface, just to get started getting into the book, um, that you were inspired somewhat by Patrick Moore. And I, I just wanted to get your take on science communication or what, what is the role that you see for putting this information out there in the public? Well, I think it's important that we who are funded from taxpayers' money to do science um, play our part in telling the public what it is we're, we're finding out. I mean, this particular book... Um, is, is not aimed at a general public. It's a little too technical for that, but I hope it's accessible for people who are interested in astronomy and planetary science in general. And you mentioned Patrick Moore. Patrick Moore was, um, when I was a boy, Patrick Moore was a guy who was presenting, when, when Apollo 11 landed in the UK, Patrick Moore was one of the two anchors on the TV shows. He, I learned my astronomy from borrowing library books written by by Patrick Moore. He, he wasn't the same great scientist, academic scientist as, say, Carl Sagan, who Americans will know more than, than Patrick, but he was a wonderful communicator. He had this monthly um, television show called Sky at Night, which every astronomer used to, used to watch. And um, I didn't get to know Patrick till, till, till quite late in life. I mean, Patrick Moore died uh, two years ago now. I've known him since about the turn of the century. So I, I knew him for about 12 years. He had me as guest on his show. And the last time I saw Patrick, he said, Dave, you, you've got to write that book about Mercury. And I said, yes, I'll write it, Patrick. But I'll only write it if you'll write the preface for me. So he promised to write the preface. And then he went and died before before the book even got accepted by a publisher. But uh, he, was, he was a great inspiration to so many people who've become astronomers or planetary scientists in the UK. They'll often almost invariably, in fact, trace it back to, uh, to Patrick Moore in their formative years. He was quite an influence on so many people. <laughs> I'm sure he would have held up his end of the bargain, too. He would. <laughs> so, uh, so also you mentioned, so you describe Mercury in particular, and you've had this project on your mind for a while, uh, as a planet that doesn't draw attention to itself. And partly, as you describe in the book, that's because it's very hard to observe, and it's very hard to get a spacecraft there. Uh, so in the first chapter of the book, you really uh, set out sort of the situation that Mercury's in uh, and from an observer's perspective and then sort of the general characteristics of how people have looked at it and tried to discover the various properties of it despite being very difficult to see. So why is Mercury so difficult to observe? Well, it's the closest planet to the sun. Um it's never more than 28 degrees away from the sun. Uh, so if you want to see it in a dark sky, um, it's always very low to the horizon. And it doesn't stay there long either because it moves around the sun so quickly. But it's said that Copernicus uh, never actually saw Mercury. It may not be quite true. He certainly writes of it being so difficult for him to see Mercury from northern Poland where he worked. So it's a it's a challenging object. I've I've never I think I say in the book that you can go out, wander outside, and if Venus is there, you can't miss it. Any other planet, you can't really miss it. Mercury, you have to stare in the right direction to see it. You don't spot Mercury by accurate by accident. It's not that bright. It's sort of first magnitude, but 
always low in the sky. So it's not easy to spot. A lot of astronomers have never seen Mercury. Uh, there's also a um, an interesting historical puzzle to understanding Mercury's uh, orbit. Uh, it has to do with general relativity proofs and with uh, the possibility of there being a planet inside the orbit of Mercury. Could you take us through that a little bit? I can, and in doing that, I'll be, I'll be telling you the same stuff that I read from Patrick Moore's books when I was a boy, because this is quite old science. But uh, Mercury has the most eccentric orbit of, of any planet. Its uh, distance from the sun is 20% or something uh, less when it's at its closest to when it's at its furthest. So this is Mercury's perihelion, its closest point to the sun. And... Um, because the orbit is so eccentric, you can map the position of its perihelion quite well. And it began to be noticed that Mercury's perihelion was progressing around the sun. It doesn't stay in the same place. And the rate at which the perihelion moves around the sun, it's not very fast at all. But it's, um, most of it can be explained by the influence of the other planets on Mercury. But there's a small residual which couldn't be explained. Uh, and so back in the 19th century, people were saying, well, this must be because there's another planet that we haven't yet found inside the orbit of Mercury. Put a planet there, the right mass, the right orbital period, and it will drag Mercury's perihelion around by just the extra amount. So this hypothetical planet called Vulcan um, was looked for and never found. Um, but it turns out that you don't need Vulcan at all because... General relativity, the warping of space-time by a large mass, i.e. the sun, um, does it for you. So there cannot be a planet Vulcan inside the orbit of Mercury. Now, that would, uh, that would give you the, uh, a result which doesn't fit with, with, with the measurements. We understand Mercury's perihelion advance perfectly now that we've got relativity. Mm -hmm. And I think there was a, a recently discovered object, and Vulcan was on the table as one of the names, and, and it wasn't chosen. Uh, and I remember just uh, rooting for, you know, the, the fictional planet Vulcan that was inside Mercury, and I was very relieved that it wasn't picked. <laughs> this was one of the um, recently discovered moons of Pluto, I think, where Vulcan won a popular poll. That's right. Okay, so one of the things that I've always found very interesting about Mercury is its rotational configuration and the kinds of temperature distributions that that results in, uh, which is a, it's a very strange situation when you consider how we live on Earth, to consider what it would be like to be on the surface of Mercury. Uh, could you maybe explain the, the orbital resonance that's going on? Yes, it's weird. It rotates on its axis three times for every two orbits around the sun. And that actually means that its day length, sunrise to sunrise, is two years long, two orbits long. Because if you rotated once per orbit, the day would be infinitely long, the sun would be motionless in the sky. If you didn't rotate, to rotate at all in your orbit, you'd have a backwards day, the sun going backwards around the sky for orbit. So anyway, three rotations for every two orbits gives you a day twice as long as your year. And that sounds a ridiculous situation to be in, but it comes down to Mercury's eccentric orbit. People would originally think that Mercury's tidally locked, and it, because it's so close to the sun, it would keep the same face to the sun all the time, like the moon keeps the same face to the Earth all the time. Uh, it doesn't happen with Mercury. Um, the three to two resonance is stable because it has such an eccentric orbit. When it's near perihelion, Either a point, a specific point on the equator has the sun directly overhead for quite a, a large arc of motion before the spin of a planet gets noticeably faster than your orbital motion. And then the next time it comes to perihelion, the point exactly opposite um, has the sun overhead at noon at perihelion. So the two places, 180 degrees apart on Mercury's equator, which are called hot poles, which are poles is an unfortunate word, it's meant to do with rotation, but the two hot poles are the opposite points on the surface where the sun is overhead at noon at perihelion, and there the surface is hottest at noon, hotter at noon than the other places. But everywhere on Mercury is hot because it's so close to the sun, um, several hundred degrees centigrade. It's just a 
50 or 70 degrees hotter at noon at the hot poles than it is further away. Uh, there was a time there when it was um, believed very strongly that, that Mercury was tidally locked, like the moon is tidally locked to the Earth, like you said. Um, how did it come about that that was broken, that we that, uh, some somebody discovered that it's actually in this special configuration instead? Okay, well, if I can just backtrack to the observations that misled people to thinking they'd seen the tidal lock on Mercury, um, telescopic observers in the late 19th, early 20th century began to make out albedo patterns, patterns of light and dark on Mercury's surface. But because Mercury is such a challenging object to observe, um, they could really only see it when it was at its furthest from the sun and highest above the horizon, which means you need the right season to be Earth's year. And as a kind of stroboscopic effect, you only see Mercury well um, when one of its hot poles is facing the sun, but you never see it well when the other hot pole is facing the sun, basically. So they were so they never saw Mercury when it was, had rotated 180 degrees. They only saw it every 360, 720, and so on degrees of rotation. So the seasonality of the conditions when you can see Mercury clearly misled people into thinking that always it kept the same face to the sun. And it didn't become apparent until the 1960s that this wasn't the case. The first hint was when we got some um, infrared telescopic data of the dark side of Mercury. Oh, no, no, there's a whole disk of Mercury, uh, infrared come microwave radiation. The total flux uh, was too great uh, to, be, to be coming from a hot part and a cold part of the globe, because the cold part of the globe that never saw the sun should be at minus 250 Celsius, or some very, very cold temperature. And clearly there was too much radiation to account for that. So you had, you had to be cooling down at night, but not so cold it was almost zero kelvins. So it became apparent from the total infrared microwave flux from Mercury but it was rotating and not in captured rotation. And um, then radar observations actually measured the rate of rotation and found that it had to be, in, it was in fact in a three to two spin orbit coupled state, three rotations per two orbits. So this became apparent in the early to mid 1960s. Uh, one of the other things about Mercury, because it has no moon, the mass of the planet was a little bit more difficult to estimate. But I understand that there was an early estimate of the mass, early compared to the 20th century, uh, that came from the comet Enki. Uh, yes, that's right. Um, you, you can measure the mass of a planet really easily if it has a moon going round it, because the, the, the orbital period and the distance between the two relates to the total mass of the system. So any planet with a moon, you can measure its mass very easily. Mercury, as you say, lacks a moon. The first estimates of Mercury were based on the influence of Mercury's orbit perturbing Venus and indeed the Earth and were, were not that inaccurate, but the best estimates of the mass came when comet Enki flew close enough to Mercury to be perturbed. And it became apparent that Mercury's density was uh, as high as the Earth's density, um, which sounds reasonable and unsurprising until you take into account that Mercury's rather small compared to the Earth, and it shouldn't be that dense because it doesn't have the gravity to compress its interior as much as the Earth's interior is compressed by the Earth's uh, gravity. So Mercury, once we knew its uh, mass and therefore its density, was revealed to be an unusually dense object for its size. This is sort of describing Mercury's situation and its orbital configuration, and it has this anomalously high density, perhaps, that needs to be explained. And there was a spacecraft mission to Mercury in the 70s, which was uh, 30 years before Messenger, that didn't actually get into orbit around the planet, but made a couple of flybys. Uh, so maybe we could talk about Mariner 10 and what kinds of surprises came out of that spacecraft's visit to Mercury. Yeah, sure. I mean, Mariner 10 is the basis of 
all the detailed books about Mercury before the one that I've just written, because it was the only spacecraft to go to Mercury until Messenger got there. Um, Mariner 10 actually had three flybys of Mercury. It was only meant to have one until somebody pointed out, hang on, um, if you're going to swim past Venus to get to uh, Mercury, which you need to do to uh, have a trajectory that will get you to Mercury and get there not going so fast that you whiz by that time to see anything, you're going to swing by Venus. You can arrange it so that you then put yourself into an orbit around the sun that takes twice as long to go around the sun as Mercury does. So once you've flown past Mercury, you carry on, go around the sun once, come back to where you were, and there will be Mercury again. So you put yourself into a two-to-one orbital resonance with Mercury about the sun. So you get two. In fact, if your spacecraft lives long enough, you get three flybys for the price of one. And it was a chap called Giuseppe Colombo, an Italian astronautical engineer that suggested this to, to NASA. And he's the guy that gave his name to the mission I'm involved in, Beppe Colombo. He's named after Giuseppe Colombo. So Mariner 10 had these three flybys. And um, the big surprise about Mercury was Mariner 10 found a magnetic field. You might think magnetic fields are, are common on planets, but they're not the norm for rocky planets. Apart from Mercury, the Earth is the only rocky planet to generate a magnetic field. The Moon doesn't do it, Mars doesn't do it, Venus doesn't do it. And this strong dipole magnetic field of Mercury uh, was taken rightly as evidence that Mercury's core, at least part of it, is fluid. So to, you can't generate a magnetic field by having a permanent magnet inside a planet. It's too hot. Everything's going to be well above the Curie temperature where a magnetic field can be frozen in. You have to have something electrically conducting but circulating to generate a magnetic field like a dynamo. The Earth's outer core is fluid. Mercury's outer core is also fluid, generating a magnetic field. And that was a big surprise. Now, Mariner 10's three flybys, only two of them penetrated the magnetopause, but they were enough to show the um, general characteristics of the field. And it carried a magnetometer because it was expected just to um, be able to measure the interplay between uh, the solar wind and ions coming off the planet, uh, rather than finding a real magnetic field generated inside Mercury. So it was that was a big surprise. The other findings of Mariner 10, that Mercury has quite a lot of craters, well, that's no surprise because we knew it was an airless body. It's too hot, too small to hold on to much gas. So it's unprotected from a bombardment from space and no, nothing, no wind processes to erode craters away. So once you form a crater, it stays there forever. And what else did Mariner 10 find? Well, it found places where the crater density is not so high as the density cratered areas. So there's an age variation across the surface, some younger surfaces, some older surfaces. Big impact basin, the Caloris Basin was discovered with fractures inside and a or what was fractured is a surface that's less cratered than many parts of Mercury. So something that flawed Caloris Basin is younger than processes elsewhere on the planet. And um, Mariner 10 also found signs of contraction. Mercury is a planet which has been contracting, not by much. The estimates of the global contraction from Mariner 10 were about two kilometres in radius shrinkage. And this is just the planet cooling down are getting slightly smaller through thermal contraction, but it forms escarpments on the surface where thrust faults cut up towards the, uh, the ground surface, and you can map these so you can find craters which are shortened by these thrust faults which cut across them. So from Mariner 10 on the surface, we have the thrust faults, we have crater age varying from place to place, some smoother areas, some less smooth areas. But it, the spacecraft wasn't equipped to measure surface composition. It wasn't really equipped into imaging colour. So we knew very little about Mercury's composition. We could just see its general geological history. Now, uh, since Mariner 10, but before Messenger, there's also been discoveries of um, ice in the craters at the poles of, of Mercury. Uh, could you describe how that could possibly happen, given that it's so close to the sun? Uh, yes, I certainly can. The, the observations were radar, 
Um, you can image Mercury's polar craters with radar from the Earth. It's an amazing feat uh, to see these craters and within them something that is reflecting the radar back very strongly. Now, it doesn't have to be water ice. It could be a concentration of sulfur or something with the right dielectric properties. We're now pretty sure it is ice, though. And um, in fact, if we can skip ahead to what we've learned from uh, from Messenger, the, the, the areas of bright radar return are inside craters, which we now know are permanently shadowed. Mercury's rotation axis is almost exactly 90 degrees to its orbital plane, so it doesn't have seasons. Crater near the poles has parts of its floor where the sun never shines. So those places are very, very cold. And they've been able to collect uh, ice. It is largely water ice, we're almost sure now. And the accepted story behind this is when a comet strikes Mercury, as comets do, maybe one crater in 10 on Mercury is formed by a comet hitting the surface, and the other 9 out of 10 are formed by an asteroid, a rocky or carbonaceous body hitting the surface. But when a comet hits the surface of Mercury, because comets are largely ice, but the ice is, is vaporized and the molecules disperse in ballistic, ballistic trajectories, and a water ice molecule that hits somewhere hot on Mercury will bounce, and it will keep on bouncing until it escapes to space. A water ice molecule that hits somewhere that's cold will stick. Now, if where it happens to be cold, it's just cold because it's night. When dawn comes, it will get hot and evaporate again. But if where it's stuck because it's cold is in a permanently shadowed part of the crater, it will be stuck there forever and it will be joined eventually by other water molecules. So you build up molecule by molecule ice within the permanently shadowed parts of Mercury's polar craters. And the same thing happens on the... Uh, Permanently shadowed lunar craters as well. We've got even better evidence of, of ice in some craters on the moon near the poles. So we're, we're, we're pretty robust in asserting that there is ice trapped in the permanently shadowed parts of Mercury's polar craters. First inklings of that were from the ground-based radar observations. All right, so, so we'll wrap up with Chapter 2 that now. So that was the Mariner 10 era of Mercury science. And then there's 30 years with no missions to Mercury. Uh, so in chapter three, you kind of go through what it took to renew interest in Mercury and the origins of both Messenger and Bepi Colombo, the missions that you mentioned. Uh, so so why the, uh, any renewed interest in Mercury? What does it tell us about anything other than the planet itself? Well, if you're asking me why two different space agencies, NASA and ESA, wanted to go to Mercury. It was because it was clearly an anomaly, denser than it should have been. I mean, this large core, uh, to explain its density, with its outer part fluid to explain the magnetic field, um, and the very implies a very thin, rocky exterior. So something strange has happened to Mercury to strip it of most of the rock that it should have had. It's got far less rock than the Earth or Mars or Venus. So it's an anomalous planet that needs to be explained. Um, and it was Mercury's turn. There have been so many missions to Mars, and there still are far more missions to Mars than Mercury, and quite right. Um, Mars could harbour life and so on. It's had flowing water. But we're not going to understand the Earth and the other planets unless we know more about Mercury than, uh, than we currently do. So... Um, that's why Mercury was targeted by two space agencies simultaneously. Um, and uh, NASA with Messenger got there quicker because it's a, it's a simpler spacecraft and it's done a grand job. You also mentioned in this chapter that it wasn't clear always that it would even be possible to get an orbiter around Mercury uh, because it's so difficult to navigate the the gravity from the sun is very strong of course and and just the um the logistics of it are very very hard but there was a woman named chen wan yen uh that's right came up with a solution to this yeah the issue is to get to mercury you're falling towards the sun so you're accelerating all the time and uh, to be captured into orbit you've got to match velocities with mercury and if you've fallen in all the way from the earth you're traveling far too fast to match velocities with Mercury, 
unless you're carrying an unfeasible amount of rocket fuel, retro rockets, to slow yourself down. Um, what Chen Wan worked out was an insight equivalent in magnitude to what Giuseppe Colombo came out with for the the the, the, um, the repeated flybys. And what Chen Wan said was, well, what you do is you um, you, gain, you get a gravitational assist from from Venus, one or two gravity assists from Venus to um, send you in the right direction at the right speed to begin with. And the first time you fly past Mercury, you are in a three to two, shall we say, orbital resonance with Mercury, which means that Mercury is making three orbits around the sun for every two orbits that you make. But as you pass Mercury, you use Mercury's gravity to just change your velocity to put yourself into a four to three resonance with Mercury. The next time you approach Mercury, you swing past Mercury to put yourself into a five to four resonance with Mercury. And if you need to, you do it again and put yourself in a six to five resonance with Mercury. But eventually, your velocity difference to Mercury is sufficiently small that you can carry enough fuel to slow yourself down and be captured into orbit. So Chen Wan came up with this, this plan. And in fact, there were three uh, flybys that... Uh, Messenger made in its mission plan had three flybys of Mercury nudging itself closer and closer and closer to match Mercury's orbital speed before eventually so it was able to be captured into orbit. And Chen Wan is um, um, still semi-retired. I think she's in her 80s now. Lovely lady. I've spoken to her by email uh, to, to, to ask her her experiences in, uh, in working this out. So, uh, like you said, uh, this set of maneuvers allows you to make three flybys and then sort of nudge yourself into a state where you can actually get into orbit. But then even when you're in orbit around Mercury, it's constantly evolving because of all of the pressure, the gravity from different sources that's causing the orbit to change. Uh, so, so what are the different challenges there? Well, the effects of Mercury's gravity in causing the orbit to evolve weren't fully appreciated until... Messenger got into orbit. It, it, it depends on the, you know, the total strength of planet's gravity, so that will determine the orbital period. But how your orbit will evolve depends on the second and third and you know, higher order components of the gravity field. Uh, and you've also got the pressure of solar radiation. So orbits are not stable. When I was a lad watching Star Trek and they were in orbit about a planet, and, and, and somebody would say, Captain, the orbit's unstable, we're going to crash into the planet. I was thinking, rubbish, once you're in orbit, it's stable. But it's not true. They were right on Star Trek. Orbits tend to be unstable. And so there have been Mercury's effects on Messenger has been to lower the near point of a spacecraft's orbit. And they've had to use what little fuel they've got left to boost the height of the near point of their orbit, the periherm, the closest point to Mercury. There have been several periherm boosts to boost the orbit back up. And the, the reason why the messenger mission is going to end in March 2015 is they will have run out of manoeuvring fuel and it will hit the surface because the low point of the orbit will be at zero kilometres above the surface. And the other problem with orbiting Mercury is if you want to be over the day side of Mercury so you can see it, you've got the sun occupying you know, three times closer to you than it is at the Earth on one side of you, and this enormously hot planet, the other side of you, filling most of the sky. Your spacecraft has nowhere to lose heat, and most of your electronics need to be working at zero Celsius or sometimes a lot lower. So it's a real problem to operate a spacecraft in orbit about Mercury. And the way that the messenger engineers got around this problem um, was to have a ceramic sun shield on the side of a spacecraft that faces the sun, to try and to do what they can to keep the heat of the sun off the body of the spacecraft, and not to dwell close to the planet for very long. Messenger is in a very eccentric orbit. Uh, at its furthest, it's something like 40,000 kilometres above the planet, and at its closest, when the mission began, it was like 400 kilometres. It's, it, it's, it's well below 100 kilometres, its closest point now. But this eccentric orbit means you swoop low above the, the planet for 20 minutes every orbit, and then the rest of the orbit, which is something like, I think, 12 hours long, reduced to eight recently, uh, rest of the orbit, you're a long way from the planet, not absorbing so much heat from it. 
So you have an eccentric orbit and do what you can to keep your spacecraft cool. But it's a big engineering challenge to operate in orbit about Mercury because of the gravity constraints and the thermal constraints. Mm-hmm. Seems like a very tough place. Uh, so Messenger uh, is the spacecraft that's orbiting now. And as you said, Bepi Colombo is scheduled to launch in a couple of years uh, from now and to arrive at Mercury in 2024. Could you give us an overview of the differences between Messenger and Bepi Colombo? Yeah, sure. Um, Messenger is a single spacecraft, um, pretty well equipped. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's been a wonderful spacecraft. What it has on board are, um, there's a camera with um, pretty good visible near-infrared colour capability. There's a non-imaging spectrometer that will measure the surface reflectance properties from the near-ultraviolet through into the infrared. And there is a magnetometer for the magnetic field, which has now been very, very well studied. What haven't I mentioned? There's a radio science experiment for um, tracking the accelerations of spacecraft experiences, which helps us measure the uh, planetary magnetic field. There is an an X-ray spectrometer, which is not an imaging system, but it is picking up the X-rays fluoresced from Mercury's surface, because Mercury being airless um, receives X-rays from the sun, which are not blocked by any atmosphere, and the, the atoms near the surface fluoresce back at characteristic energies, which tell you what those atoms are, what elements are, are there. And we've now got an X-ray map of Mercury's major elements with a spatial resolution of several hundred kilometres. It, it's, it's, it's quite crude, but we had nothing before, so it's wonderful. We know the aluminium, the silicon, the sulphur. Sulphur's a big surprise. I'm sure we'll talk about sulphur, the iron, the magnesium, the calcium on Mercury. Just half a dozen major elements. So that was new. We had no X-ray data from Mercury before. And there's a, a, a gamma ray spectrometer and a neutron spectrometer, and those have cast light on the uh, the ice near the poles, for example. All right. So, so that's sort of the main characteristics of Messenger. But so Bepi Colombo is not just a single spacecraft. Is that right? Okay, that's right. Bepi Colombo um, is two spacecraft. There's the European uh, component. When we, it's all being taken to Mercury on a European spacecraft, solar electric propulsion. This is an iron drive. And all the time it's falling towards Mercury, the iron drive is firing to slow it down. It's a it's pretty nifty propulsion technology. When we get there, we separate the European orbiter, which is called MPO, Mercury Planetary Orbiter, um, is in a much less eccentric orbit than Messenger was. It stays closer to the planet and will image the southern hemisphere much better than Messenger did because Messenger was always high over the southern hemisphere. Betty Colombo will do both hemispheres equally. And the spacecraft that we jettison, that we separate from the uh, uh, transfer vehicle first is the Japanese component, MMO, the Mercury Magnetosphere Orbiter, uh, which is very well equipped with magnetic particle and field and electrical um, uh, sensors. And that will be in an orbit more similar to Messenger's. So we have the the Japanese and the European orbiters for, for Bepi Colombo. So the total payload mass is, is a, lot, a lot. It's considerably bigger than, uh, uh, than messengers, and we're more fully equipped. Um, there are no, um, there's no infrared capacity on messenger, for example. Bepi Colombo, Colombo, has an imaging system in the infrared. And there's a lot of mineralogical information that you can get from thermal infrared imaging, quite apart from the thermal properties of the surface and how it heats and cools by day and night. uh, The actual um, infrared spectrum tells you a lot of um, mineralogical information. The instrument that I'm involved in, my colleagues at Leicester University in the UK have built an X-ray telescope. We will get an this is an imaging system of Mercury, not just a crude collimator like Messenger has. Uh, at best, when the sun is flaring, we'll get a map of the dozen most abundant elements on Mercury with a best resolution of a few tens of kilometres, which is really very good for X-ray imaging. Uh, we've got better stereo imaging in the visible, better colour imaging in the visible than 
um, the messenger had and um, more particle and field experiments than the messenger had but with two spacecraft um, we had more payload capacity so we're bound to do a more thorough job so we have that to look forward to. Uh, so moving on then to chapter four, which is covering Mercury surface as seen by messenger. You kind of provide a, a summary or a very detailed, it's not just a summary, but a very detailed explanation of the kinds of things that messenger has seen since it's gotten there. Um, and it's been orbiting for several years at this point. So maybe we could go through some of those discoveries. So for example, the the fact that Mercury is missing craters in some size range, uh, what could that possibly indicate? Um, there are craters in all size ranges, but there's a deficiency uh, in sort of mid to large size range, suggesting that some craters have been flooded by lavas. Um, in fact, everywhere we look on Mercury, um, the surface is volcanic. Uh, it's not like the moon, although superficially they look similar. The high albedo, the bright parts of the moon, are not lava flows, it's a flotation crust that floated up from the primitive lunar mantle and uh, lunar magma ocean. And only the dark patches on the moon are flooded by lavas. On Mercury, first of all, you don't have the albedo differences that you have on the moon. It's a very muted planet, but there is colour information in there if you, if you work at it. And the older areas have been, you can tell they are, that there's an older surface buried by younger lavas, even though those younger lavas are older than the lavas elsewhere. By looking at the crater statistics, which suggest that the lava flooding was sufficient to bury the mid to large ancient craters, but not the very largest ancient craters. And by analogy with the younger surfaces, you can see very good in the younger surfaces, ghost craters, um, where all the sm old small craters are completely obliterated, but the larger ones that were flooded by lava, which then cooled and contracted a bit, have reappeared because the crater rims of the flooded craters are just re-expressing themselves in the topography. As the lava flooded and cooled and contracted, the topography picks up the trace of the buried crater rims. And these ghost craters are all over Mercury. And the whole history of Mercury, it's pretty clear now from, from Messenger, is one of repeated episodes of, of, of volcanic flooding. Mm -hmm. And that's, as you said, to compare it to the moon, that has a quite different kind of, of history of events going on. Uh, well, there are a lot of ways that Mercury and the Moon can inform upon each other by studying the crater. But there are airless bodies, large uh, airless bodies, um, rocky airless bodies, and the creation processes are very similar. There's a lot of similar processes on Mercury. The impact architecture on Mercury is similar in many places to what we see on the Moon. But what we're lacking on Mercury is that first primitive crust. It may be there somewhere. Maybe what we see being uplifted in some central peaks or in some ejected, there's, there's a low reflectance material which we see on Mercury in place, which could be the ancient crust um, that's been exposed in large impacts. But think about a planet that starts as a magma ocean. What is the first crust that forms? What's the first material to solidify? Uh, but there may be some primary crust on Mercury that's been buried by lava flows that we haven't properly recognised. It could be this mysterious low reflectance material. We don't know. But looking at the Mercury shows us what we're missing. Looking at the moon shows us what we're missing on Mercury. And um, it's really got people scratching their heads. Um, so maybe we could we could talk a little bit about the chemistry of the surface that you kind of alluded to before about the iron content of the surface and the presence of sulfur being an interesting find. Well, yes, it, it's not actually true that there was no work done on Mercury between Mariner 10 in 1973 and 4 and Messenger's flybys uh, in 2008. First flybys. There was work from the ground trying to understand Mercury's composition, looking at how Mercury reflects sunlight, and it appeared that the trace of iron, iron, iron bonded to oxygen, should give you a distinct 
um, signature in the reflecting spectrum, and it was almost undetectable. So people began to suspect that mercury had very little iron bonded to oxygen at the surface. And iron bonded to oxygen occurs in a lot of rocky minerals. Um, now we are there with Messenger, and we have the um, data from Messenger's X-ray spectrometer and the gamma neutron spectrometer. This has shown us that indeed mercury has almost no iron at the surface, 2% iron or something like that, either bonded to oxygen or in any form at all, because the X-ray spectrometer doesn't care where the iron is. It could be metallic iron, bonded to oxygen, bonded to sulfur, whatever. You would see it irrespective of chemical bonding. And the iron is very, very low at Mercury's surface. So that is a strange thing in the planet with a ginormous iron core to have no iron to speak of in its crust. If there's no iron in the crust, the mantle from which the crust has been extracted is probably deficient in iron as well, because iron does not fractionate strongly when you partially melt silicate. So Mercury's rocky part is deficient in iron. But we also know from the X-ray spectrometer on on messenger that it's very rich in magnesium so the volcanic rocks that flood the surface's lava flows are high magnesium low iron basalts essentially we're pretty sure of that now from the data we have from messenger the other thing we know from the x-ray spectrometer is mercury everywhere we look has between two and five percent sulfur at the surface but it doesn't have to be elemental sulfur it could be bonded to something like calcium or magnesium. It doesn't correlate with the iron, so it's not iron pyrite, it's not fool's gold, it's calcium magnesium sulfide, probably. But rich in sulfur, which is a surprise because sulfur is a volatile element and you shouldn't have volatile elements abundant on a planet that close to the sun. And hand in glove with this richness in volatiles that Mercury seems to have, we have the explosive volcanism. There are in it, on top of the effusive lava fields, we have deposits which we think are almost certainly deposited from explosive eruptions. You can see the vents, holes in the ground, which are not circular, they're not impact craters, they're, they're explosively excavated volcanic vents. And surrounding most of these vents, you can see deposits which are spectrally redder than the average of Mercury's surface. You don't know what the redness is due to, but there's certainly red deposits around these vents, and that's the material that's been thrown out explosively. So the most recent volcanism on Mercury is magmas rising upwards, containing gas, which exhales from the magma and drives an explosive eruption. So this gas, again, is something volatile inside Mercury, which shouldn't be there on a planet like Mercury, driving these explosive eruptions. And the biggest explosive pyroclastic deposit on Mercury is several hundred kilometers across. And that's a lot of volatiles to disperse um, ejector, volcanic ejector on a planet with one third of Earth's gravity. It's um, big, volatile, rich eruptions. And you say this is different to the Moon. Well, a student of mine, Becca Thomas, who's done a lot of work with me on the uh, explosive vents on Mercury has now moved on to compare those with the moon, and there are a lot of explosive vents on the moon as well. And um, the, the deposits are less widespread than on Mercury, so the, the moon is less rich in volatiles than Mercury. Um, but what we've learned on Mercury is making us re-examine what we thought we knew about the moon and to recognise more and more of these explosive volcanic um, vents and deposits on the moon. So planetary science doesn't progress in isolation. You find something weird about one planet, or one planetary body, and it makes you look at another one in a new light. What is it like being a, originally a terrestrial geologist, a remote sensing expert, uh, and applying that now to these extraterrestrial surfaces? Well, it, it, it's great. It's my, it, it's my trade to, to do geology. And here's a whole new... New planet, but what we're planning now in preparation for Bepi Colombo is the Europeans, Bep, Europe's Bepi Colombo team, and um, the, the mostly Americans on the uh, the Messenger team are going to start using the Messenger data to produce a new generation of geological maps of the planet, 
Um, so we can put our forthcoming BepiColombo campaign into context. We need the geological maps to work out the context of all our of all our targets of special interest. So it, it, it's great. But I, I, as an undergraduate student, I had to go to northwest Scotland and, and map an area of, of, of the Scottish Highlands, which was great training. And now I'm uh, participating in an international campaign to do similar stuff on the planet closest to the sun. It's a, it's a real privilege to be doing this. So here we have um, sort of summarized some of the surface observations that have come back from the messenger. Uh, and then in chapters five and six, we talk, you talk a little bit about Mercury's interior and then also the magnetic field and the exosphere environment. So I wonder just about chapter five of the uh, interior of Mercury, what are the kinds of things that we can learn about the inside of the planet from looking at the outside and the spacecraft observations. Okay, well, other work that happened just before Messenger got there was again radar work, very, very clever stuff, looking at Mercury's libration, uh, which means just a slight mismatch between um, its... Um, orbit around the sun and its surface rotation. It just, the surface rotation is not quite uniform. And this was showing um, that the outer part of the core um, was fluid. And this was just tallied with the most obvious mechanism for generating a magnetic field, which is that the outer part of the core is electrically conducting and fluid. So we before we got to to... Mercury with Messenger, we had a pretty clear idea that we'd got this fluid outer core. Now we're, now we've, I guess we'll talk about magnetic fields shortly, so I shouldn't digress into that. But it's quite clear that the outer core must be convecting, but we've got a map of Mercury's gravity field, and it's also its moment of inertia. And there's a whole iner moment of inertia of the whole planet, and the moment of inertia of just the solid outer shell of the planet. And putting all these lines of evidence together, it's quite likely that we've got a at the base of a rocky mantle, and before you get to the fluid outer core, which is probably iron sulfide, you need something like sulfur mixed with the iron to stop it solidifying. There's probably at the very interface between the fluid core and the rocky mantle a shell of solid iron sulfide, which is high density which is required to explain the moment of inertia properties. And this, this high-density shell below the mantle goes by the rather dramatic name of the anti-crust, which used to produce some quite interesting Google search res results until Google wised up and realized people didn't want to look for anti-crust rather than anti-Christ. <laughs> I, uh, I thought that term was very interesting, too, when I was reading through the book. So why is it called the anti-crust? Uh, well, it's compositionally different to the mantle, and it's below the mantle rather than above it, whereas the, yeah, the, the true crust is above the mantle and compositionally different. This is something of different composition. Uh, below it, it's not really segregated downwards from the mantle, though. It's come upwards from the, from the outer core, so it, it, it's, it's not really the right name for it, but it's so catchy, I think it's going to stick. <laughs> um, so you're talking about the core and, and what's going on in the interior of the planet. One of the terms that we use in planetary science a lot is thermal evolution. Uh, and I wonder, could you give us just an overview of what, what does thermal evolution of a planet mean? Well, it means the cooling history of the planet, really. Uh, planets start out hot because they're we had violent bursts, planetary embryos bumping into each other, turning kinetic and gravitational potential energy into heat. So you start off with a hot planet, possibly surrounded by a magma ocean, and it cools down. Now, it does generate heat by radioactivity, uh, so that will counteract the cooling. But despite that, planets will generally cool and the rate at which they cool and the heat bounces out inside the planet and you've got the competition between cooling 
and radiogenic heating, which of course is stronger early on before your isotopes have decayed so far, that will give you a history of expansion if planet's warming up or contraction if it's cooling. So thermal evolution is not just for temperature, but the um, thermally controlled uh, density of the planet. And it's quite likely that Mercury was expanding the first half billion years, possibly nearly a billion years of its history, but since then it's been contracting. And that's why we get these fault patterns at the surface, which are now much more complex. We skipped over this on the previous chapter, but the, uh, the fault systems at the surface are more complex and more numerous than we were able to recognize from Mariner 10. And we now realize that Mercury is probably contracted by about seven kilometers uh, in radius to explain all the faults we see at the surface. And they are linked fault systems. It's complicated tectonics. Another reason why Mercury is a great place for geologists, but the history of the fault movements, what type of fault move when, um, and the deceleration that there's probably been in the amount of fault movement every uh, uh, over time suggests that Mercury's rate of cooling is, is, is decreasing, as, as, as you would expect. So the, this fault system and the kinds of depths that the faults can go to are useful to estimate some of these parameters in the thermal evolution, just like the magnetic field is. So all of these things are really linked together, the temperature history of the planet and the tectonic history and the magnetic fields of the planet are all linked together. I think that's a good way to, to phrase it, Meg. You, you, you're not going to understand a planet very well at all if you just look at one line of evidence, um, there's always something, there's always many things that you can learn uh, by looking at um, other lines of evidence. This is why uh, you should equip a spacecraft with as many instruments as you can. Crikey, if they'd not put a magnetometer on Mariner 10, we wouldn't have discovered Mercury's magnetic field and wouldn't have had an even better magnetometer on, on Messenger. You have to expect the unexpected and then use all the lines of evidence that you can uh, to tease out what you hope is the truth. I'm sure we've got a lot of things wrong on Mercury. I'm sure we'll still have a, a lot of understanding wrong after Bepi Colombo, um, but hopefully we'll understand a lot better than we do now. You, you have to weigh all the evidence. Speaking of the magnetic field, just to uh, cover Chapter 6, about the magnetic field and also the exosphere environment. One of the things that's interesting to me about the, the exosphere study, um, maybe you could also explain what that term is exactly, but one of the things that I found interesting about this chapter is thinking about the lessons we can learn at Mercury for other planets, particularly exoplanets that might be orbiting close to their stars as well. Okay, well, um, an exosphere, every planetary atmosphere terminates in an exosphere, it's the outer part uh, of an atmosphere which, uh, which is not bound gravitationally to the planets, it's the, it's the part of the atmosphere which is escaping to space. Now the Earth's exosphere is losing a trivial amount of material, don't worry we're not going to run out of air, but Mercury's exosphere goes all the way down to the planetary surface, there are no atoms around Mercury gravitationally bound to the planet. It's, so hot by day, they've got enough kinetic energy, Mercury's got relatively little gravity, they will all escape to space. And um, what we find around Mercury is um, uh, an exosphere of atomic magnesium, atomic calcium, uh, atomic sodium, for example, and these are things which have probably been liberated from the surface. Rock bonds have been broken to enable these atoms to to escape. And this is because Mercury is being bathed in strong sunlight. Sometimes, but not always, the solar wind hits the surface. Solar wind is charged particles deflected by Mercury's magnetic field, except when the sun is flaring strongly enough to depress the magneto pores down to the surface. So you can get solar wind particles to the surface sometimes. And then there are micrometeorites hitting the surface all the time. So there are ways to break bonds and to replenish Mercury's exosphere. Now, exoplanets, planets around other stars, many of the easiest ones to study are really, really close to their stars, far closer than Mercury is to the Sun. And what Mercury ex experiences in terms of being hot and bombarded by 
the stellar wind and the micrometeorites and strong UV radiation. These exoplanets experience in spades. They're really, really suffering. So um, Mercury is not just telling us about Mercury and its relationship to planets in this solar system. Hopefully, it's giving us insights into the more extreme exoplanets that are being studied by astronomers these days. Um, so just to wrap up then with Chapter 7, you get into the possibility that Messenger has raised more questions than it's answered and, and this exciting time for expecting new returns from Bepi Colombo in the pretty near future. Uh, so you kind of mentioned them early on, but uh, you come back to them in this final chapter. Uh, there are a couple of different scenarios that could explain some of the big features of Mercury, the large core, for example, the chemical composition of the surface. Uh, do you want to talk about those a little bit? Uh, what What are the different scenarios that are possible to explain these kinds of things? Yeah, okay, well, Mercury's large core and relatively depleted rocky mantle used to be explained by, oh, well, it's had a giant impact which blasted away the rocky exterior, or, oh, it's so close to the sun, the rocky part was sort of stopped from condensing around it in the first place because it was too hot. Just This just doesn't work. Now we realize Mercury is so rich in sulfur. Um, I, we didn't mention its high potassium thorium ratio from the gamma ray spectrometron messenger. If potassium is volatile, thorium isn't. There's a high potassium thorium ratio on Mercury. It's got to be volatile rich. And the unknown gaseous volatile that drives explosive volcanism. Three independent lines of evidence that Mercury is rich in volatiles. And I exclude the polar ice from this because that's we think is cometary and a late addition, not indigenous to the planet. So we've got a volatile rich planet with uh, an impoverished crust and mantle and a large core. How the heck do you get that? That just doesn't work and it shouldn't be like that. Um, an explanation which was in Nature Geoscience this, uh, this summer from Asfag and, and, and Reufer suggests that Mercury wasn't struck by a giant impact. It was the giant impactor. And Mercury is what's called a hit-and-run impactor. It hit either the Earth or Venus, and in doing so, it lost a large part of its rocky exterior. But the hit-and-run dynamics enable it to hold on to most of its volatiles and not become incredibly, incredibly depleted in volatiles. So maybe Mercury bounced off the Earth or bounced off Venus and did itself a lot of damage, lost its original crust and most of its mantle, but was able to uh, retain and even rear creek a lot of its volatile components. It's, it's not a perfect explanation. Mercury is still very mysterious, um, but it's an example of, of where... The old, fairly comfortable story about Mercury, um, it's turned on its head because it's rich in volatiles and have to come up with an even more outlandish explanation to uh, try and account for the observed facts. Now, when we get there with Bepi Colombo, um, maybe we'll find something which means this hit and run impact model doesn't work. And we'll have to think again. And that's the beauty of doing science. So I'm sure that you are preparing... I have a lot of preparations to make for Bepi Colombo's launch and then a little bit more time before it actually arrives. Uh, but So what are you working on right now or what's exciting to you at the moment? Okay, well, in, in terms of Mercury, let's just explain where we're at. The, the spacecraft uh, has been assembled and is being tested and there's a chance to tweak some instruments before the final assembly of the spacecraft. But it, it's uh, the job of, build, of designing the instruments is done. Building them, tweaking them is just in, in the final stages. After we launch, uh, which should be 2016 or early 2017, we have an eight-year cruise to get to Mercury. We do fly by Mercury, doing these Chen Wan maneuvers to go from a four to three to a um, the five to four, so six to five orbital resonance. But unlike Messenger, we get no flyby science. Messenger and its flybys observe the planet. We've got two spacecraft bolted together, and they can't see the sky during these flybys. It's only when we achieve orbit and we separate that we get our science. So we've got a frustrating delay until 2024 before we get our first data. What are we doing during that cruise phase? Well, my instrument team, using the 
uh, X-ray spectrometer has a lot of work to do because X-ray fluorescence from a, a powdery surface, which is what Mercury is, there's almost no bedrock there. It's all regolith, like on the moon. Anywhere you step on Mercury, you'll leave a footprint. You won't be stubbing your toe on a, a large rock. So we've got to understand the physical properties of the surface, um, the geometry when the sun is in one part of the sky, the spacecraft another. Uh, do the elemental abundances uh, appear to change according to what direction you're looking, basically? And our, our, our sister instrument, the solar X-ray spectrometer, looks at the sun's X-rays because we have to calibrate the incoming flux with the S flux. There's, there's all kinds of, of work to do on how our, on to characterize our instrument using the flight spare during cruise. So we're not going to be idle. And um, what, what I'm really hoping we're going to find, not not me and, and the team I'm working with, but the scientific community, is a meteorite from Mercury. Because we've got meteorites from the Moon, we've got meteorites from Mars. The statistics are that something hitting Mercury, knocking a chunk of Mercury off, it's about 100 times less likely to get a meteorite from Mercury on the Earth is to get a meteorite from the Moon on the Earth. We've got 100 lunar meteorites in the collections now. But there's a fighting chance there's a bit of Mercury somewhere. And if we had a bit of Mercury, there's so much we could do. We, we could do the trace elements, which we're never going to get from orbit, even with the, we have the best X-ray spectrometer in the world. We'll get isotope ratios. We'll get the core formation history from the segregation of different isotopes, possibly from Mercury meteorite. So the next big advance, apart from Columbo, is going to come when somebody recognises a meteorite from Mercury and starts to interpret it correctly. That'll be the next breakthrough, I think. You also mentioned that there is a transit coming up of Mercury that could be observed, that, that people could go out and observe themselves if they, if they prepare. Is that right? Absolutely. I want to make this a, a big event. It's May the 9th, I think, 2016. It's a, uh, uh, a Monday, and Mercury will go across the face of the sun. It starts at about uh, 11 hours universal time, finishes about 19 hours universal time. It's perfectly timed for viewing from Western Europe. In um, On the east coast of the US, you'll see almost... All of it on the West Coast, we'll just see the, the last few hours of it. The Mercury going across the sun is, we're going to hopefully use that as a big outreach uh, event. Uh, I want everybody to see Mercury. You do need, do need optical aid to see it. It's too small to see um, with just putting eclipse glasses and looking with the naked eye. You've got to project a magnified image to see Mercury. Um, but I want to, I want the world to be aware of this Mercury transit and, uh, use that as a platform for telling them the rest of the Mercury science that we learned from Messenger. Okay, I think we'll wrap up our conversation there. The book is Planet Mercury, From Pale Pink Dot to Dynamic World. And thank you so much for talking about Mercury with me for a good chunk of time here. No, thank you for inviting me. You've been listening to New Books in Astronomy. I'm Meg Rosenberg. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.